Hello and welcome to another episode of Doctors Without Bar Tabs. After that first episode, people often ask me questions about myself. Things like, who are you? What are you doing here? Why do you have all this alcohol with you? Is that a 12-pack of White Claws? Is that a bottle of whiskey? How did you get into this event? This is private. This is my house. I'm going to tell you the same thing that I told Dame Judy Dench at her 88th birthday party. My name's Nathan, and I'm the host of Doctors Without Bar Tabs. It's the podcast where I talk with healthcare and medical professionals and make them tasty cocktails. After the last few years, I think that they could use a fucking drink, don't you? To which Judy Dench then said, Sounds great. Now fuck off. Also leave the light class. Today, my guest is Dr. Adam Barlev. Adam received his PhD in nucleic acid chemistry from the University of Simon Fraser and has spent time teaching at Quest University. Currently, Adam is working at SignalChem Biotech and is an account manager there. I actually met Adam in December because I was the one who trained him in his first week at SignalChem. So now I can officially say that I have trained someone with a PhD, so that basically makes me a doctor without any of the effort or the stress. You can see Adam fuming right now <laughs> as I say that. <laughs> of course, this is all before I left my career to pursue my dreams of bartending three days a week and to talk to smart people about things I don't understand. Talking about bartending, that brings me to the cocktail of the episode. The Sazerac is a classic cocktail originating from New Orleans with roots dating back as early as the 19th century. Sazeracs can be made with both brandy or rye, or both together, absinthe, peychaud bitters, and classically with a sugar cube. These are then stirred and strained into a rocks glass neat or in a single king cube. For today's cocktail, I will be using 1.5 ounces of the Prospector Rye from Odd Society Spirits, half an ounce of brandy, some simple syrup, three dashes of Peychaud's bitters, one dash of Angostura, all stirred in a mixing glass. Separately in the rocks glasses, I'm doing an absinthe wash, which means that I fill them with half an ounce of absinthe from the Tofino distillery, ice and cold water. After about a minute, strain the contents from the rocks glass, put into a shot glass and serve separately. These can be either done as a shot or you can add them to the drink as you want. We elected to take shots. Once you've done that, strain the contents from the mixing glass and serve. For the garnish, typically you would go with a lemon peel, but today I'm using maraschino cherries. I want to say, if you don't have the right maraschino cherries, always go lemon peel. You got to get the stuff from either Starlino or proper Italian ones. Nothing like those big bulk Costco candied ones. Now, if you do want to make one for yourself, be sure to check out my Instagram which is at newdoc.me or TikTok, which is newdocnate. You too can impress your guests with easy-to-make tasty cocktails. I'd now like to thank Palm Street Studios for lending me their space for the day. But enough about me, my cocktails, and my will-they-won't-they they stories with Judy Dench. Let's meet our guest, Dr. Adam Barlev. Adam, welcome to the show. Hey, Nathan, thanks for having me on. 
Yeah, obviously, man. I, I really appreciate you coming on to the second show that we're doing. I've been podcast curious for a long time. I've wondered what it's like to to do these kinds of things because I consume a lot of them. So it's just really interesting to be on the other side. And you never know if you don't dive in, right? Yeah. Sometimes you got to do a podcast to find out you don't like doing podcasts. Sometimes you got to do a PhD to find out that research is really hard and can make you hate life for a few years. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You know what? Actually, why don't we just talk about your PhD in that case? Was it, was it worth all the pain and suffering? Yeah, it was. But you have to choose to make it that way. I think that working in industry, one of the things that you tend to have is like direct supervision and management. Whereas when you're doing a PhD, like you can go like months at a time without running into your boss. And so it can be, if you're not interested in doing it, it's very easy to fall off the edge of the earth or just fall off their radar. And it can be, if you aren't self-motivated, it can be very difficult. But if you have a burning question that you want to answer, then it can give you the opportunity to do that. And that's the main reason why I would recommend anyone get a PhD more than some long-term financial gain. It's just... It's your opportunity to do your original research. Okay, so you still find the whole thing rewarding to do the PhD, and it's worth it to find these answers. Yeah, it is. But it's funny because when you're at that stage in your career, I mean, there's all these memes about grad student leaving at 3 a.m. with a gel that looks like you sat on it, and the postdoc can do the same thing in a 9-to-5 schedule. So it's just a certain stage in your career where you both don't know that much and so everything is harder but also you have the most to learn i think yeah yeah it's something that for me personally it's it was just the most daunting ask i'm not a person who i don't think i could ever do it myself i'm thankful that there are people out there doing it because they have paved the way for modern sciences but yeah it's never something that i could commit to like how how long did it take you to get your phd well i didn't have a master's so when you do a phd and you so i went into the master's program and i transferred into the phd program from the master's program what that meant is i had to do more classes so it makes sense that it took me seven years the average completion time for a chemistry master's degree at the time that I was doing it was four and a half years. When I started and I was in the master's program and I was doing really well, I thought, yeah, I'll continue doing this kind of stuff. Going to the PhD program meant a pay raise. It was one of the only things that I could do at the time to get a pay raise. Like literally one of the only things that I could do. The other thing which I did at the time, which was really helpful, and I really recommend every grad student do this, whether you're in science or any other field, is I got really involved in my union, which represented teaching assistants, which is how we would pay for our non-research funded semesters. Like typically what you'll get is in a year, you'll get one or two semesters where you don't have to teaching assist, and then you'll have one or two semesters where you do have to teaching assist. And depending on your boss as a teaching assistant, that can be a huge time suck that completely destroys your ability to do research that semester, or they can understand your situation. But regardless, you're asking for someone to 
but do stuff out of the goodness of their heart. And employers don't generally do that. Joining my union was fantastic. And I met people outside of my department. I think if I hadn't joined the union, I wouldn't have met a single person outside of the chemistry department. But it was being both in, in chemistry and having the, the, at SFU at least, Simon Fraser University, not University of Simon Fraser. It's always spelled at SFU for some reason. The chemistry building and the molecular biology building are literally joined. They share this corner. So I got to meet a few people in the MBB department as well. Uh, but if it wouldn't have been for that extracurricular stuff, what you probably will have time to do as a grad student, because there will be a lot of times when your research will be stalled because of one thing or another. Yeah, I think that everyone should do something like that, whether it's union work or some other kind of extracurricular thing. Yeah, it'd be a way to just actually get out of your little bubble and I guess your little scientific echo chamber, meet more people at the university. I didn't spend much time at SFU, but it is a pretty large university. And I feel like it, like I went to UVic, which is all in one ring. And it's very easy to meet people outside of your classes, even without doing any sort of union or joining any clubs. But I feel like at the bigger universities throughout North America, it seems like you have to do something like that if you want to escape your little bubble, meet new people, and have a broad social life. At my undergrad, I did my undergrad at UBC. And at UBC, the chemistry building is a huge building that's about a 20-minute walk in the pouring rain from the molecular biology building. Uh, and they're both interesting departments. I would love to go to seminars from both. But it would have been a lot harder for me to do that at UBC, and it's because of the design of the campus. It makes sense. The chemistry department is big enough at UBC to have its own building. But is that the best experience for all people? Is, does everyone who's a grad student in chemistry necessarily have to exclusively focus on chemistry and know nothing but chemistry? I don't think that's actually the best training or education. No, I agree. Like I was in the science programs, studying biology, and this is for my undergrad as well. But I would, I definitely had some friends who were in that department, some people in chemistry, some people in biology. But I'd say the majority of my friends and friend group all came from different backgrounds and were in different fields of study, which was great. It was gives you more things to talk about with people. Also, no one ever believed that I was in sciences. I didn't give off that vibe, apparently. There was an Ivy League <laughs> university, and I actually don't remember which exact one it was, but in their chemistry department, they installed a free espresso bar where they hired a barista and paid for the coffee for the entire department. And it led to a huge increase in collaborations between researchers because they would come downstairs from their individual labs that they're siloed in to come down and have a coffee and run into somebody and talk about what problems they were having and people would help each other solve problems. Yeah, it's, it's a great way to be getting collaborative and getting people from different and sometimes related or even unrelated fields to collaborate on different issues. I want to jump back a little bit to just talk a bit about more yourself and what you did for work with nucleic acid chemistry and maybe for the audience and for myself, explain a bit more about the area of focus and 
what that field is about. Yeah, I'm happy to talk about it. The reason why I got into it is that I think that nucleic acids are really interesting. They're a really interesting material. The things which make nucleic acids interesting to me, and first of all, I should define nucleic acids. What we're talking about are DNA and RNA, but there's actually a wide number of new synthetic derivatives where instead of D or R, there's something else. And so collectively, that field is called XNAs, where X can be something else. For example, there's new drugs coming out now that are based on peptide backbones on nucleic acids. But these are molecules like DNA or RNA, which I think people now, even in kindergarten, learn that in DNA, A base pairs with T and G base pairs with C. The thing which people might not be aware of is that you can get any sequence of DNA that you want chemically synthesized, almost like getting it printed. You can type out a sequence on your laptop and send it to a company. They'll run a machine overnight and they'll send it to you in a tube. That That's one way to go about things. Another way to do it is to own the machine. And I've known people who've done that too. How expensive are those machines though? They're, I got to imagine they're like 100 grand for some of them. Yeah, they are expensive. And that's yeah. why companies will run them 24 hours a day to get the maximum out of their investment. And why sometimes it pays to go to the professionals and let them do the work for you because that's all they do is synthesize nucleic acids. I think I've lived through a transition because when I started in nucleic acids, me and everyone who was working in it thought these will someday be medicines. And they weren't for a bunch of reasons. It was hard to get them into cells. It was hard to get them through the digestive system. There were a bunch of downsides to using nucleic acids as medicines. And then a pandemic happened. And it turned out that some people had an idea about how to do both of these things. And a lot of them were actually in Vancouver. A lot of the groundwork or the, the chemistry that was used in the COVID vaccines was done here. And based on the results of those, which have been really good, millions of lives saved, we figured out that that actually, yes, nucleic acids can be medicines. But I remember being at a conference and having the CEO of one of the companies that worked with Pfizer to develop their nanoparticles describing the technology. And I think at the time I was, I raised my hand and I asked a question like, is this really, is this bullshit or are we actually going to make medicines out of these things? Because you guys have been talking about it for a long time. But what it took was a global pandemic for them to really get on the ball and push stuff through quickly to the point that now, obviously, everyone knows that you can use RNA as a medicine and you can use it for about a million other things than just viral infections. And we're about to see a whole new generation of medicines come about because of these technologies. But at that same no, at a different conference, I remember, I think other people have thought this. For example, it was a woman from Agilent. I was in Montreal for the International Roundtable on Nucleotides, Nucleosides, and Nucleic Acids. And she showed a picture of processed chemists opening a reaction vessel where they were producing DNA synthetically on the kilogram scale. And she had a Southern accent. I'll never forget her saying, DNA is just like everything else on the kilogram scale. It's a white powder. And it just showed this stuff pouring out of this giant stainless steel reaction vessel. It looked what you'd see at a brewery. Not that different, I guess. But 
yeah, you can make DNA. It's just a material and it has some amazing properties that really set it apart from all other materials. I think the most notable is you can copy it really easily. There's no way to take a very tiny amount of protein and amplify that up into a large amount of protein. But when it comes to nucleic acids, that's trivially easy. And proteins have a lot of problems of solubility. Pro proteins, the proteins in your cell are like almost at their limit of how much you can get dissolved in the cell. But nucleic acids, because of their backbone, are incredibly water soluble. And so if you're thinking about some of the questions that I was thinking about a lot of in my research were having to do with how it is that life got started. And if you imagine that you have a material which, no matter how it changes or evolves, it's still going to stay in the water, as opposed to a kind of material that like a bunch of the times when you make a one amino acid change, it will precipitate and turn into like scum on the bottom of your tube. I really think that nucleic acids are where it's at when it comes to that kind of stuff. All right. Yeah, thanks for talking about all that. I also, for the audience at home who's listening to this, we said white powder, white powder, not, it was just in a Southern accent. Nothing racial here. <laughs> Nothing racial. Yeah, I'm going to have to edit that out. <laughs> not the white powder part, my, what I just said. What, what is powder? Is it like the fact that she was this lily white, white Southerner? Is that I think it's because it was the Why Southern powder? accent. Yeah, the Southern accent you were doing. But it was just like that. I swear yeah. to God. It reminds me of a Dave Chappelle sketch from way back in the day. <laughs> 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 oh, yeah, I got a very off topic with that one. But no, that's, that's really good. And that you're probably now one of the only people I know within Signal Chem on the sales side who outside of obviously our the project manager, not ours, I don't yeah, work there Khan, anymore, yeah. Khan, yeah, that really knows the science to the level that you do and understands it. You also, yeah, did you ever find any sort of, any issues with moving from the public sector or in university space to moving over into sales and in the private sector? Was that a... How was that transition for you? Look, I'll tell you, I went to every careers night that I could go to when I was still doing my PhD. And I was one of those people that was just an asshole at the table when they would have the speed dating part where we would meet all the presenters. And no one else was brave enough or no one else was willing to just ask, hey, how much do you make doing this job? And what I basically learned in that experience from talking to tons of people is that scientists aren't paid as much as people in sales. And the reason why is that as a scientist, you're working on a lot of stuff that's really abstract or related to the profit of the company. Whereas a salesperson can talk to the CEO and be like, look, I made this sale happen. I You need to compensate me for the fact that I have increase the revenue of the company by this amount. So that was, it's either that or people in bioinformatics, which I'm sure that's going to get saturated eventually anyways. But those are the two biggest earners. So yeah, the thing which is the biggest difference between this job and working in the public sector is just that this is the first time I think I've ever had a job where if I work harder, I make more money. It's insane. You can also have bad luck and make less money down to some minimum. 
but even that minimum I'm pretty comfortable with. And then, um, yeah, it just feels great to, to work harder and get appreciated for it. Yeah. I, sales is great. It's not a sales podcast, but because there's a thousand of those, but sales is, it's a great industry to get into. And I think a lot of people who are postdocs or have their PhD, it's worth it to look into the private sector. Maybe you want to be altruistic and you're fine with less money. But at the end of the day, a lot of the times, especially if you're living in cities like Vancouver, New York, San Diego, San Francisco, where a lot of Vancouver doesn't have the exact same level of biotech sales or biotech jobs, but Canada-based, it's expensive and you need a job that can pay for you. And a lot of the times, if you're staying at a university, it's going to be, it's going to be tough. Like, I think you were telling me when I was training you or when I took you home that, that day, just about how, not necessarily how little you made, but you were just astonished when I told you how much you should expect to make at SignalCam. Yeah. I'll just spill the beans here because this is public information. The thing about the public sector is that you can actually just look online and everyone's salaries are public. So being a big passion for me was teaching. I really enjoyed being a teaching assistant, even though it wasn't something that necessarily helped me graduate or really advanced me that much in my career. But I really liked teaching and I did end up getting the brass ring of getting to teach some of these big 250 person lecture classes at SFU. And it was super fun getting to go up there and be the performer. Even no matter how many students are in the room, even if I have to manage three TAs, even if no matter what's going on, what you're getting for that one class is the exact same thing. It's not a lot. It's seven grand for being for pretty much semester? on call for the whole semester, being the person in charge, being the person who... You know, when a student doesn't show up to the Student Disability Center, you got to track them down and figure out what grade you're going to give them or how to get them to come back there and write their exam. You're the one who is fielding emails 24 hours a day. It is a lot of work and it is not compensated fairly. Yeah, it's just not. Maybe that would be fair if I had done that same class 20 or 30 times and I was just phoning it in. But to create all of the content and perform it for the first time, but just the people management part of it. I don't even think that's realistic. If you've done it multiple times and have taught the class for years on end, you're giving tons of value just because you know it and maybe you are phoning it, phoning it in to some degree. But realistically, like you are, you're teaching a group of, yeah, you're saying like 250 people at times incredibly necessary towards their development and 7k for four months is it's pennies it's pretty crazy yeah it's definitely below minimum wage but what they do it as is the hours that you're paid for are literally just the hours that you are in the classroom teaching at that you know that three hours a week right that's what they're actually paying you for and then i guess your office hours but they're not paying you for the other stuff that you do. And the rule of thumb that I was taught is for every hour of lecture, you're going to spend 10 hours preparing for that hour of lecture. So then after teaching at SFU, I could have kept working there. And I think probably my life would have been a lot different if I did. I'd probably still just be at SFU 
if I had not decided to move somewhere else because I had a lot of issues with the educational system. I had a lot of issues with students who have challenges, disabilities of some kind, AD, whatever, those kinds of things, learning disabilities. A lot of the times in university, their brains are just completely distracted and ten different places because they're trying to learn five or six things at once because they're taking five classes at once. So I heard about this university in Squamish that was really teaching focused. And it was their their model there is that you would compress a whole semester into th four weeks and you would do one class at a time, three hours a day, five days a week. And I thought, perfect. This is the kind of place where students who have so much struggle at SFU or UBC, when they can't, they can't figure out how to interact with all of this information at once, they could just be at one place where they have to be corralled into just focusing on one thing at a time. And so I worked there for about two years. The first few classes I ran there were really so much fun and fantastic. And at that time, the caliber of students there was incredible. And I thought, this is the place where I'm going to make my career. I'm going to, you know, get, I'm going to do whatever it takes to get a full-time job here and just be permanent here. So that was my goal at the time. There's these stepping stones to getting that. And one of them is that they give you a full year of classes there. So six classes there. And they have this name for it, which is, it's after I'd graduated with my PhD. It's called a teaching fellowship. It's like a postdoc is what it's designed to be like. I got there that year and they were in a huge funding crunch. They had a much lower enrollment than they had previously. So because of that, they just didn't have enough money to pay their staff. They had to literally go into CCA. They went into bankruptcy. I had my boss at the end of the year tell me, yeah, we'd love to give you a full-time position here, but there just isn't the money. And I ended up that was my last academic job was working at Quest as, at that year at Quest. So my recommendation to anyone is if you're going to work at a university, as much as in the union we're fighting against the university, there's never any question of whether or not the university is going to still exist. But if a university is going through a bankruptcy, start looking for other options sooner rather than later. So uh, the other thing which happened during that bankruptcy proceedings, the CA credit pr protection, is that the pandemic happened. That was 2019 going into 2020. And a lot of students were international students. Those are the students who could afford $35,000 a year, which is how much this place costs to go to. I definitely had mixed feelings about how much privilege you needed to go there because I thought that we were doing something that could really help a lot of people, but right. only a few people could access it. Yeah, Quest is a school where I do, I really like the premise behind Quest and when I was originally looking into universities, that was, it was something I was looking into as an option, but it is quite expensive. And they do explain that your tuition goes towards people who can't afford tuition. Although I don't know the full details on that. You might have a better idea, yeah. but <laughs> not to bash the school. It's a great thing, but I did always, I, all the people I know who went to quest come from money. Like, it very much was a school that felt like rich kids playing socialist. It's gone. So we can talk as much shit about it as we oh, want. Oh, Quest is it's gone. It's literally gone. 
I still have a few friends who work there up until the last day, which is we're in the last one of these one month blocks that's going on right now. And so on at the end of next week, it's going to be completely over. So we can complain about how it was mismanaged and how it went wrong. But there definitely was a lot of scholarship money for talented local people. But just when you're applying someplace, you don't necessarily know that. And I still believe that there were some really good ideas being tried out there. But when you go out of business, it doesn't make it look good in the future towards using those ideas. So step one, keep your university from going bankrupt. Yeah, I think that's a good overall rule with universities. Don't go bankrupt. Or you can go UBC's route and just be never go bankrupt and continue to increase fees year after year. But that's just how North American schools go these days. Like it maybe even part of the reason I didn't even look into masters or PhD was just just the sheer amount of fees that I'd have to pay at a lot of the Canadian universities. Double, triple that for an American university. Well, that's not quite right. Because if you're doing a PhD or a master's in science, for you are PhD, getting paid. True. No, no, master's oh, or master's PhD. As well? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I, once again, I'm going to be totally transparent about the numbers. At the time, at SFU, in the MBB department for a master's student, what you get per year is 1850 what you'd get in chemistry is 2100. So for me, it was a no brainer, right? I could have done either. My boss was cross posted in both. So I picked chemistry and switching to the PhD program meant that I was making 24. But the idea that students are really just gonna be able to just follow their passions and not listen to these financial incentives is really ludicrous. And I just can't believe that, that they had those disparities at the time, but it really just comes down to that one department was wealthier than the other. Yeah, that's an it's a bit unfortunate in that, but that's always how it's going to be. But out of that, that <laughs> twenty one or eighteen, whatever, you still had to pay over the year about seven in fees and tuition. So really, what you're left with out of that eighteen fifty, you're you're supposed to survive in Vancouver on eleven fifty a year, which is pretty tough. Yeah, and given the science departments, it's not like you can just have another job while you're doing that. Or you can, but it would be incredibly difficult to juggle that and juggle your mental health. Yeah. I, I had some difficulty with that in my undergrad originally, and that just goes further and further the more you go into your ap academic career and working towards more degrees. I think it depends on what field you're in, for sure. If what your master's in is a lot of reading, then maybe you can find some job that lets you do your reading while you're doing your job. But when you're doing a master's or a PhD in a hard science, especially with your inexperience and how much troubleshooting you're going to have to do to figure out how to get your stuff to work, you, you there's no way you have time for uh, uh, any kind of other income. You're going to be doing multiple 14-hour lab days. You're going to be coming in on the weekend to feed your cells. There really isn't any extra time. That's the whole point of funding you is that it's certainly less than minimum wage, but the point is to, otherwise it would just be impossible to do that kind of work. Yeah, no, I don't think I could ever do it. I was never 
I've thought about going into sciences for a master's. Never, I never thought PhD just because the idea of working, going to school for another four plus years, unless I was going into medicine, was super daunting towards me. So I looked more to get an MBA, which honestly, it's two years out of your life and can be very worth it for the networking purposes. And this was also at a time that I was working in sales for the last few years. And then I was at Signal Chem and thinking an MBA could be beneficial, although I don't necessarily know if it's going to be more beneficial than the work that I'm currently doing at Signal Chem and the networking events that we would go to as a company. I actually want to transition to talk a bit more about Signal Chem where you're currently working. You have my old job, which is always, it's a fun thing getting to train you and you get to see the, some of the potential difficulties within different territories within the U S you're working U S central, which was all with the same territory as me. It was nice in some senses where you had some guaranteed income from some of our bigger clients but it has it definitely at times would take a toll from me like any sales role would how has it been transitioning into sales with signal chem i've been having a really good time in a couple of ways i feel like i didn't get really specific when i was talking about what i was doing in my research in my lab we would have to do some really old school biochemistry and what we would use a lot of the time is radioactive ATP. We would use the radioactive ATP to label our nucleic acids and then use that for further experiments. Now, something that transfers a phosphate from ATP and attaches it to something else, that is a type of protein called a kinase. Now, the kinases that we use to do that reaction are like molecular biology reagents. They're very commodity reagents. But that is the basic idea of what is the bread and butter of signal chem cells. Signal chem cells, kinases, more than anything else, that's what it's known for, is that these are proteins that take ATP and they transfer one of its phosphates onto some other molecule. Now, it turned out that for the longest time, the best way to measure the activity of kinases was with radioisotopes. When I get in a room with some old school people that have been doing this field for a long time, I feel like I have way more in common with them because of the research that I did. Even though I was in nucleic acids and I had nothing to do with cancer research and signaling kinases, it actually turns out that we use some of the same materials. Like here's one of the funny things, right? So when you're working with radioactive isotopes, anything, yeah. radioactive anything, you have a Geiger counter. So the Geiger counter goes tick and it has a little dial that goes up and it goes 10 counts per minute is like very low. And then you'll get really hot samples that are like thousands of counts per minute. And it's not even ticking anymore. At that point, it's just, Wee! it's just doing this funny noise. And to get your material, to get your stuff clean after using radioactive stuff with it, you have this cleaning material. You have this spray bottle that has the funniest name of any cleaning material that I've ever heard of in my entire life. It is called Counts Off because it gets the counts off. Oh. It gets the counts off of your setup yeah. <laughs> so you can use it again. But this is like really heavy duty oven cleaner stuff mixed with alcohol that you spray all over everything. 
it's probably more toxic than the radioactivity. But the point is, it gets your counts off. So this is the kind of stuff that, like, when I joined SignalCam, I had no idea. Like, when I was doing my work in the lab, I was really feeling like there's no way that I'm ever going to be able to apply any of this stuff to any job because it's too old school. Because nowadays, people are all doing sequencing. They're using dyes instead of radioactivity. They're doing all kinds of other stuff. But it actually turns out that it was, like, the perfect thing for me to understand are really long-term customers that have been doing this forever. And I almost want to get us to get another radiation license to do it again, because there's some stuff that you can only do with radioactivity that you can't do with our current ADP Glow, although ADP Glow is much, much more convenient in a thousand ways. And I don't want to, I don't want to knock it. ADP Glow is amazing, but- um, You keep that, you get that pro mega money. <laughs> yeah, radi radioisotopes are really cool to work with. and. So the other thing which I did in my research is pretty much everything that I did in the lab, the readout, what ultimately generated the data, almost everything was running gels. And gels are, I think, something which you can learn a lot about a biomolecule by running it on a gel in different ways. You can, there, there's, I think my boss has a class where we go through papers from the 60s, 70s, 80s, where they figured out the structures of things by running them on gels in different ways and applying reagents and then running it on a gel again and really being clever with gels, which is a simple technology that just, and then, you know, and then he shows later we did a crystal structure, later we did an NMR structure, later we did cryo-EM and we found out the same information. But if they hadn't done that, that fundamental work with gels, they wouldn't have had any idea for decades. And this is what, just measuring their molecular weight and then getting the ideas from there? Let's say you have a junction where you have two, it's called a four-way junction. A holiday junction is a place where two DNA strands come together and meet, and there's four DNA strands meeting at one place. And you might wonder, what is the shape of it at the junction? Is it a cross? Is it like a, a, a tetrahedron? How do the DNA strands arrange themselves? It turns out that what happens is that at that four-way junction, the DNA strands will stack on each other. And by stack on each other, what I mean is that instead of all of them pointing in different directions, you'll have two of the strands in the four-way junction will line up, and then two of the other strands of the four-way junction will line up. And you'll get this structure that's called a stacked X. That structure was determined by one of the people that was at this AACR conference and when I saw his name on the list, I had to write him an email and I was like, oh my God, you are on Lily at all. You're on this classic paper that I've read like a thousand times where you just use gels to determine that the four-way junction forms a stacked X. And of course, now it's been observed lots of other ways, but just by basically cutting off one of those strands and then running it on a gel again, you could determine that, that it has this asymmetry that it's not just a cross where all four strands are equally away from each other. It's that they line up. It's more like two helixes that are next to each other, and then there's a little bridge between them. But all of this was done using the kinds of techniques that I'm talking about, gels and radioisotope labeling. And for every protein that we sell at SignalCam, there's a gel on the data sheet. And that gel tells you the purity of the protein. It's not the same kind of gel, but the point is I am used to looking at a gel and figuring out something. That is all we did in every lab meeting. And my boss was great because he could look at a gel in 10 seconds and he can see what's going on. And it took me a long time to get to that level, 
but it's just something where I really felt right at home joining. In my particular research, I was working on a nucleic acid that acts like an enzyme. So you think of enzymes are made out of proteins. It turns out that in some weird cases, you can make enzymes out of nucleic acids. And I, I made an enzyme out of DNA and we studied it and we proved it was an enzyme, published it, all of that good stuff. The way that you characterize something as an enzyme or not is whether or not it follows michaelis menten kinetics, saturation kinetics. And that's another thing, which is on all of our data sheets for all of our products, is we have an activity profile where we increase the substrate and see how the rate of the reaction changes. And so it's just another place where I felt like it's just a basic fundamental thing of biochemistry is that enzymes follow michaelis menten kinetics. And I felt really quite at home joining SignalChem and looking at what we produce and being like, I understand this. And there's a lot of people in the MBB department with me that weren't in my lab that probably wouldn't feel that way because they were doing stuff that's more modern and more advanced. Um, but I think that because of just the fact that we focused on the fundamentals, or that's what my boss did, because he was an older PI. He's retired now. He retired last year. Because of that stuff, I really got introduced to the stuff that would make signal can feel like a good fit for me. Yeah, I think you're probably also one of the few people who's ever worked in sales and marketing within that group that actually knows what you're reading. It took me, what, maybe about six months, realistically, to completely understand our data sheets. And that's with some prior knowledge. They, they do expect you to have scientific knowledge if you're getting into a sales role there. But it actually coming back that working at SignalChem did make me wish that I did have more knowledge, like a master's degree or something like that in, in molecular chemistry or in bio, in biotech, biochemistry in general. That's probably one of the only reasons looking back that I'd actually look into furthering my career that obviously things changed says I am. No the thing is, when you're doing an undergrad, they're giving you these huge surveys Yeah, where they're just like going through, okay, and we're going to do five seconds about this subject, and then we're going to do five sections about this subject, and then they just keep it moving like that, and you never get deep into anything. And it's really hard to understand something at that pace. No, and a lot of these things are really subtle. Um, and it takes, yeah, it, I think it took me years to understand stuff while I was working with it. And that's the kind of criticisms of the educational system that I had that influenced me to join Quest University because I thought this is a place where I can design my own curriculum in such a way I can let students work on their own interests and in that way get deep onto a subject that was interesting to them in the same way that you do in grad school. Yeah, and I think as a whole, it's that the system needs overhaul to get people more interested because yeah, I, until third year university, if you're in sciences, you're not going into any depth on any of the classes and you're just taking a general panel of what you're supposed to learn. And realistically, all I really cared about then was I would learn the subject, just try to ace the test and then it's out of my mind. And then I'm on to a new thing that I learn about for a few weeks. And that's how you get success. Yeah. That's not necessarily how you're going to get success in grad school, though, or in industry. But if we talk about changing the system or changing a system, I think that's one of the biggest differences between academia and industry 
is that in academia, things are really hard to change and, and really quite stuck for historical reasons, or it's just you want to keep things consistent so the people graduating this year have a similar thing to the people graduating last year. But was it ever the best way to do things? Whereas in industry, when we're like, okay, this approach isn't working. Okay, let's change it. No one's there to tell us, oh, no, you got to keep doing it this way. Actually, that's not 100% true. There's some annoying things that are stuck. There certainly are. I find those to be more on the bureaucratic side in general that are stuck, though. Whereas SignalCam is pretty, as a smaller company, is fairly fast adapting on the scientific side. Exactly. Yeah, they're definitely trying new things. And it's been a while since I've really kept up to date on what they're doing in product lines, but what is SignalCam up to these days? Yeah, so I think what SignalCam's, one of their strengths is just being able to produce a protein in its, in its active state and keeping it in good condition so that you can send it to someone and they can get it to work consistently in their experiments. Because I think that a lot of SignalCam's customers are people in the pharmaceutical industries doing screens where they want to look at the behavior of a certain protein against thousands of compounds. And the differences between the effects of those compounds might be relatively small. So if your protein has a high variability from batch to batch, then that can mean that your data is useless and you can waste millions of dollars on a screen that doesn't give you results that are significant. So I think that's one of their strengths, and it's the fact that we have different expression systems that we have. Obviously, E. coli express stuff, but also the moth cells, the SF9 cells, are a really good eukaryotic way to make active enzymes. And then, of course, yeast. And also the plant division, which is like a little bit under the radar. But I talked to the chief science officer. So he was one of the people who interviewed me for the position. And as soon as I met him, I got a really good vibe. Usually when you meet people that have his track record in drug discovery, they're a lot more full of themselves. But he was just really down to earth and nice. And so he's a person who worked for a long time, I believe at Xenon, correct me if I'm wrong, but doing, yeah, doing drug discovery. And he got... This was in the, the 2000s, yeah. I think he, it was Xenon. He got, he decided to work with SignalChem. And I think that the, he described it to me as a lot of people in drug discovery have people on the business side telling them, you know, don't work on this, it's not going to work. But they have their own ideas. So this is why one of the people at SFU, Bob Young, is left Merck because he wanted to have an academic lab where he could do whatever he wanted. And I think that the idea with SignalChem is that, okay, we want to do drug discovery the way that we want. But drug discovery is very expensive. So the way that we're going to fund drug discovery is by having a commercial side that sells kinases to everyone else. We're going to still have a great product, and we're going to be able to use that product for our own research. But the profits from that, we're going to invest them into drug discovery to develop our own cancer treatments. And that is now come to fruition. It's a long process. Drug discovery is a really long process where you try a lot of things 
and it's very challenging, but we've now gotten to a certain stage in it, which is phase two. So we've gotten to phase two, okay. Yeah, so phase one is just, is the drug going to be toxic? And so we've gotten through phase, phase one, and phase two is where they're actually, I'm not an expert in the regulatory environment, but it is in phase two now. So that's a big deal. We just got that a couple of weeks ago and, and I could really see the relief in everyone's face from having made it to that point. It's a big deal. It's not the end of the road, but it shows that we are cranking along down that road. And it's a testament to his work and all the team that has been around him supporting him. But it, the regulatory aspect is so big that they, they did hire like a specialty consultant to help them with navigating these applications to, to do this. You know, if you don't have a candidate that is viable, then all of that is, is useless. So the point is they're in phase two right now. And, and we're all hoping that this works out. But of course, we know that drug discovery is really challenging, especially phase three. We don't necessarily know where, th- where things are going to work or not. But with that program, uh, it's always a process that we're trying to develop the next thing. And, and one of the blogs that I've been following for years and years is called In the Pipeline, and it's by a medicinal chemist who's also in this drug discovery field. And that's the name of the podcast. Uh, the name of the blog is In the Pipeline because you always have something next in the pipeline after you submit your first thing. Might get caught on the mic, but I am currently cracking open those white claws that I didn't give to Judy Dench. I'm going to work on my beverage here. What is this called again? That is a Sazerac. Sazerac. Yeah. So you I can, want to cheers? Yeah, we can we cheers. cheers. Yeah, we can cheers. All right. Cheers, eh? Cheers. Okay, so I think one of the other things that you asked me to talk about was the new side of SignalChem. Yeah. So yeah, Sorry, th- before yeah, we ahead, get yeah. to that, I just want to clarify for anyone listening just how difficult it is to get to phase two and how that can boost a company's valuation. If you get to phase one B, there's going to be pharma companies out there offering you like possibly tens of millions of dollars for your drug. Getting to phase two is a massive feat. Getting to phase three is another thing. And then that's when that's when you're really going to see the dividends from it before phase four, which is ongoing trials while it's actually available to the public. So yeah, this is it being in phase two maybe doesn't sound like much, but it's a massive feat for the company and a massive feat for drug discovery. But yeah, yeah it's definitely nothing is guaranteed. And drug discovery. That's one of the things about it, which is so hard, is that you're pouring money into this program, but you really never know whether or not it's going to pan out. And so every stage that you get through is huge. Yeah, abs- it's absolutely huge. But yeah, we can touch back on to the new findings and what's happening with SignalChem these days. Sure, yeah. So I think the thing about all of these kinds of research, SignalChem is a producer of recombinant proteins, and the biggest clients of SignalChem are pharmaceutical companies that are trying to develop their own drugs. And they're using our our enzymes for their drug discovery programs. But the thing about that market is that it's very inconsistent because you'll have 
one program for one period of time that will be buying a lot of a product, but then it'll, let's say that it flames out before it gets to phase two, then they'll all of a sudden drop off as a customer. And so I think what we were looking for is to be able to use our expertise in recombinant proteins to enter a market which is more stable, which where you can just produce a product that will just continue selling and, and generating revenue. You can make projections on it more easily. So during the pandemic, that's something which they got into was diagnostic tests. The diagnostic test market is overall on the globe. It's huge. And so we hired a new scientist who I mainly know by his English name, which is Clark. Dr. Uh, Clark Shee. I think he started in 2018. And he was tasked with, can we use our expertise in recombinant proteins and our general scientific expertise? The thing which I'll say about Cyclocam is that I'm in the sales and marketing department, but it's not a it's not a highly marketing focused company. It's really a science company. So many people there are scientists. And so we thought with our science people, could we develop a new product line, a new area to generate revenue in? And so what they decided to focus on was the diagnostic market. Because once you have a diagnostic test that's good and it works, you can just keep selling it and hopefully get a, a consistent revenue stream that isn't as subject to the ups and downs as the sales to the drug discovery market. And overall, it is a much bigger market. So Clark started developing a bunch of different things that would allow that to happen. Part of it is just the facilities to produce stuff at a larger scale, because the scale that we produce things at in, in the Richmond facility in SignalChem is like for research use, but to produce stuff for the diagnostic market, they had to get a lab space in China and buy these huge bioreactors to do scale up. That's part of what he oversaw. Also part of it is regulatory, that to produce stuff for medical diagnostics, you have to do stuff under a certain certification. And so that's part of why he's been flying back and forth between China and here, was to make sure that we passed all of the requirements that we need to be a good quality lab and sell stuff that that passes spec for everyone else. But all of that stuff is that that's the basics, right? That's not telling you what's special about us that is the technology that we're going to use for our diagnostics. And so I think I want to like hint at that a little bit, but I think that the way to describe it is that let's say that you have a mutation in a particular protein in, in your body. Let's say that can lead to cancer down the line. So one way to detect that is to do whole genome sequencing where they sequence all of your DNA in your cell. And the way that sequencing works is that you submit your sample and they mix it with, they, they have a whole bunch of samples that they run together at the same time. And then they get a ton of data off of that. And the data from that then goes into a supercomputer cluster where fragments of reads are aligned with each other to see, to build up to an actual sequencing result. And then that actual sequencing result then goes to a bioinformatician who compares it to other data and then tells you, okay, you have this mutation. So the point of this is that this whole process takes a lot of time and a lot of people and a lot of money. And I think that what we've developed in the SignalCam Diagnostics Division is basically something where you can put your sample in a tube and then put it in a heater that will warm it up to one temperature 
and let it sit there for about one to two hours and then give you that same information in the readout of fluorescence. So either the tube is fluorescent and you have that mutation or the tube is not fluorescent and you don't have that mutation. But this whole process is a lot simpler, a lot cheaper, and we also have evidence that it's more sensitive to a smaller amount of that mutation. So for all of these reasons, we think that we've hit on a really cool technology, but it's still in these really early stages where we don't have the regulatory capability to use it on human samples. So what we're doing is we're taking this technology and we're applying it to some things that are a little bit outside of the box. Are you guys using it on things like animal testing or different sort of plant testing? Yeah. Uh, things that involve less regulation than human testing and human diagnostics. I didn't. It wasn't actually just at Signal Chem. So when I was at SFU, one of my friends was studying lymphoma. And it turns out that dogs get lymphoma too. And the dogs are like a common lymphoma model because the lymphoma pro progresses much faster in a dog, the same way that dogs have like dog years. It's way easier to study lymphoma in dogs. But the veterinary market, people really want to test their animals for all of these kinds of diseases. And then the other big diagnostic market in Canada, we know that cannabis is legal. The thing is, I think I, I joined the company pretty recently, and I joined after they had developed an in vitro diagnostic test for the cannabis market because they thought, oh, male plants are bad and female plants are good, so we'll develop a test for male or female plants. But they'd never had any weed grower friends. I've had like a million weed grower friends. I know a lot of weed growers. And I know that they do these things called clones. So you actually don't need to know, once you get your mother plant or whatever, you don't need to know that often. Like you're pretty sure that it's, whether it's male or female. So this test was made by somebody who didn't really know the industry. But I joined Signal Chem and I was like, I'm gonna get in touch with all of my friends from UBC who ended up going into the cannabis testing market. And they connected me with a lot of people that it turns out that there's a ton of need in the industry for tests that measure a particular gene in a cannabis plant. And I really don't want to spoil, I, there's more that I could go into on this that I shouldn't because- Keep I'll going into this. Really I cool might get stuff. sponsored by Aurora. So I need that sponsorship money from the weed industry. I'm just going to shout out. <laughs> yeah. So basically the main person that they connected me with is that there's a company in Richmond right down the street from Signal Chem called Segra. And what they do is cannabis genomics, and they test for cannabis diseases, and they're the right company. They're the people you should have been working with from the beginning because they are doing molecular biology on cannabis using these kind of sequencing methods and using qPCR and these kind of things, which are, we can do the same thing. We can get the same result quicker, cheaper, easier. And so we're developing stuff with them. And hopefully this will all take off because once again, this is a huge market. A lot of people need their cannabis tested. It's just a, I, sorry to cut you off there, but yeah. to elaborate what, what exactly needs to be tested, what genes need to be tested for it. Part of it is that they're looking for viruses Yeah. in cannabis plants. In, in their catalog at Segra, they can be like, this strain is mold resistant because it has this gene. And the question is, how do you know that it has that gene? Okay, so they're looking for very similar gene resistances than like any sort of crop. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. But it's a crop that's worth a lot of money. 
So for that reason, it, it makes a lot of sense if you're investing a lot in your setup and you have something that's worth a lot of money, that it makes sense to protect it using getting the knowledge to protect it so that you know ahead of time or if you have to quarantine it off or something like that. Of course, this leads me into my next question about, hey, bro, you ever done DMT? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. We are, I, as far as I know, the... the I'm not actually like really on the diagnostic side. I'm on the bioreagent side of the business. But I just heard today in our stand-up that somebody on the diagnostic side is talking to a psilocybin company for the same reason, right? If you have a strain of mushrooms that you say does a certain thing or has a certain property, prove it, right? If you have a spore print or something like that or just a product itself, right? Like how do you know um, whether or not it is the strain that you say it is? And so we can provide that service or we can give you a kit that will give you that information. And so I think this is a really exciting new technology. The thing about it is that it's a technology which is, it's such a good idea. This is one of the problems in science. In science, it's very rare for something to be really truly originally developed by only one person. Like once there's like the possibility, a bunch of people at the same time will figure it out. So I'm sure that we're not the only ones who have this great idea, which is going to make it so awesome, but we have it. We've demonstrated it. Yeah. We have proof of principle tests to show that we can do this. Like one of the it, one of the drugs that that I think is also really interesting is like one of my students at Quest. She was in psychology, and she was like part of what Quest did is that they made every student, even though you're an undergrad, you basically have to propose a research project and try and pull it off. And to graduate, you have to go through this process. You have to do this Keystone project. And the psychologist psychologist person, they wanted to do a clinical trial involving ketamine because ketamine has been implicated in depression. And they came into my office and they were like, oh yeah, if we give people ketamine every day, they're not going to get depressed. And I'm like, honey, I know three tattoo artists in East Fan who do ketamine every fucking day and those motherfuckers <laughs> are depressed, okay? I'm sorry, but it's not the panacea that you think it is. All of these things are tools, but the, it's not... I, I, they're not going to They're not gonna fix your problems just by by taking them. And actually, you. so you work with ProMega. I'm not sure how much you've got into interact with them as a partner, but I went to go visit them and they have their own psilocybin non-profit that they're starting right now crazy yeah i had no idea yeah yeah they they were telling me about it they're incredibly excited about it and but something that they have noticed with it and their studies and their work it has to be done in conjunction with actual therapy to you can't just take a bunch of mushrooms like every couple of days and then expect your depression to be completely gone it's meant to make you work through those with a therapist or with a psychiatrist it's and it's supposed to help push you past like the mental blockage that you're having ketamine does also have similar properties which is why you have companies like that was it fieldhouse the one no field trip field trip they're yeah they're called field trip I'm getting TikTok ads for these kinds of things. Yeah, field so field trip therapeutics is a is another one who works with ketamine, and they have actual spots where you can legally take ketamine, but it's with a therapist. You just don't you don't go there and snort a bunch of ketamine and then 
go to an after hours. You actually work through your issues with a therapist while taking controlled levels of these drugs. Yeah, and I think that one of the things which I'm really lucky for is that from an early age, my mom warned me not to trust hippies when they tell you that something is like the bee's knees. Like you just, they're trying to sell you something. And I think a lot of these therapy companies are, they're not nonprofits. They are a for-profit company that is trying to sell you something. So just when it comes to anything, when something, when someone is trying to sell you something, be, be mindful of that. Think about it for yourself and whether or not the benefits are really, or whether or not there's evidence for everything that they tell you, whether or not you believe them. I didn't know that about Promega, but I looked on their website and they have an art gallery on their campus, which I think is so cool. Their, I think it's their campus is beautiful. If you're going to definitely see it, you're going to absolutely take trips there. Absolutely. They call it a campus because it very much feels like a university campus and it's in Madison, Wisconsin, which is also basically just purely a university with a sl small downtown around it. Yeah. Yeah, I can't wait to go there, but I just I like people that appreciate that art and creativity are like parallel with science and that I think that People who end up going to school and hyper-focusing on science or hyper-focusing on art are doing themselves a disservice and that people should take a variety of different things to give themselves different ideas. But I'm really excited to go and visit them. So I just went to this big conference where all of the biggest players in the pharmaceutical industry were there. And certainly Promega was there and I hung out with them. And not as many people from them that were scientists were there as I would have liked, but... This this is ACR, correct? Yeah, yeah. I went yeah. to ACR and I met the senior scientist that's overseeing all of the collaborations that we're doing together. And... Was this... Saeed. Um, Saeed. Saeed. Yeah. He's a really nice guy. Yeah, he is. Yeah. And Hisham wasn't there. So Promega has funny... They have like funny marketing. Like they have a hot wings challenge that they do together. Oh, um, yeah. They for, made Hisham for, eat hot wings. Hicham was eating hot wings with uh, one of their marketers. They were doing this sort of, yeah, yeah, this hot ones challenge. Or, but that was uh, so cute that he was willing to do that, right? He's, yeah. a, he's a, one of these like very high level scientists. That was, that was advertising. He wasn't their, their there, yeah. which I was a little bit disappointed by because I think that me and him get along, but also me and Sadie get along really well also. And we just had, he came by and we just had a nerd session where we just, other people were watching and they were just like, you guys were talking in Greek. We couldn't understand a word you were saying, but we understood <laughs> each other. And that felt great. It just felt great. It felt like we connected uh, in a certain way. Yeah, actually, just to back on it, you, so yeah, you were at ACR. How was it? Like, did you have, that was your first ACR. And I'm imagining it could be a bit overwhelming exhibiting at a convention, at times very boring. But overall, I think it's a pretty fun experience. I had a great time. I've only ever been to chemistry conferences before and only international roundtable. That was an international conference. But most of the conferences I went to were Canadian. So they were much, much smaller. It was definitely overwhelming. It's the feeling of there's no way that it's possible to see it all. Another way that it's not possible to see it all is that the posters that were presented at the conference were a time slot. They would go up. Three hours later, they would come down. So if you don't 
have that three hours free to go and talk to that person, there's it's very difficult to get that. Whereas at most conferences, the posters that are just put up, they're just there the whole time. And you can just walk around and look at them at midnight if you want to. But that wasn't the case with AACR. Yeah, you got to be pretty vigilant with getting on top of it with the posters. I think right after AACR is the best time to think about the next year's AACR. So I think the way that I describe it is that it's the attention economy. Everyone is trying to get your attention on their technology. There's so many different kinds of things at that conference that it's also overwhelming because there's people who make pumps for pumping drugs into mice for doing mice research. There's people doing microscopes, just selling microscopes, different kinds of microscopes for different applications. It's a big tent. It's cancer research as a whole. The individual pharmaceutical companies are there showing off stuff that they have that they are allowed to talk about. Stuff that basically the patent has already been filed, so then they can, they're allowed to disclose it publicly. Not a ton of super surprising stuff, but what we more of is that there's big trends. A big trend this year, there's like a few big trends. One of them that I'll talk about is there's a kinase that's not an ATPs in kinase, it's a GTPs in kinase called KRAS. And KRAS was thought to be undruggable, but then it turned out actually you can drug it and it's mutants. And so there are a whole bunch of KRAS inhibitors being displayed by all these different companies. And then another field is protein degradation, which is that you can, uh, if you have a protein that causes cancer, you can tag it in such a way that it gets destroyed by the cell. And that was a big field. And then another big field is immunotherapy, which is taking immune cells either out of your body or getting them some other way, and then programming them to be cancer killers and then re-injecting them back into you. And a lot of those techniques use things like nanoparticles that were used for the vaccines. So the people developing the nanoparticles were there. The people developing the stem cell isolation kits were there. Um, but like a million other people, including like advocacy groups, cancer survivors. This guy came up to me and he's like, hey, you know, if you listen to my song on Spotify all night, I will donate the proceeds to cancer research. And I've survived these three cancers. He has these three prostate, one, the other, and then he has... It was a very mixed bag. For anyone listening, if you listen to my podcast all night, all week, I will thank you. <laughs> I will absolutely thank you. And maybe if I make enough money, I'll donate to cancer and stuff like that. Because that's probably important. I think cancer researchers need something funny to listen to and entertaining to take their minds off of it. But at the same time, if it's also related to their work, they'll more likely listen to it. It's, this is one of the things that Stan Lee talks about is how he was really self-conscious about the fact that he was making picture books and comic books and he wasn't helping the world being oh, an engineer, the, being the, a doctor. The Stan Lee from yeah, Marvel. Marvel, yeah. 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 And then he's at a comic convention and all these doctors and engineers come up to him and they're like, thank you so much for making this entertaining thing that makes my life worth living so that I can continue being a doctor and engineer. So I think we're doing God's work here. All right, you, know, you heard really. it first, guys. I'm basically Stan Lee, and with the PhD that I earned by teaching Adam, I'm Dr. Stan Lee Bowman. Dr. Stan Lee. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but back to ACR. You did... It was your first ACR. It was in Orlando, which... That's the land of Disney World and Don't Say Gay. How did you enjoy just traveling in general and just being on the road with a bunch of the sales team and 
just experiencing the whole conference. For some people in sales, that's their nine to five is just traveling and being at conferences, being at product shows, traveling all the time. I think that at SignalChem, we're really lucky that we are in this role, which is described as inside sales, which is that we are a business selling to another business. We're doing our sales through lead mining and connections, but they're not necessarily happening by going to a particular place, traveling around to every university to try and hawk our wares. So we're really lucky to have that role. But there's definitely some people at the conference that are just on tour. That's all they do is go from place to place and stay in a hotel, live out of a suitcase. And yeah, especially for the bigger companies too. Yeah. Yeah. But of course, like I'm super jealous of you guys getting to go to uh, New, New Orleans. Orleans last year. Yeah. I'm really disappointed that I didn't get to New Orleans. But what you just got to do when you have one of these work trips is you have to do stuff to take advantage of the fact of where you are. Our boss is Brazilian, and it turns out that there a ton of Brazilian people live in Orlando. And so we went to some really top-notch Brazilian barbecue. I had some of the best steak of my life, for sure, this weekend. The one night that, that he wasn't with us and it was just the sales staff, I was like, look, guys, we're in the South. There's this thing called seafood boil. Can we go do a boil? Oh, nice. You went for right? a boil. So we went to... The other thing is, like, when we're with... When we're having dinner with our customers... It's not nice to be like, I am gnawing the inside of this crab right now. It's not, it's just not the most genteel thing to be doing. That kind of also breaks down all barriers. If you're doing it on both ends, like you're seeing these customers who a lot of them have pretty big budgets and they're just sucking down crab meat with a bib on them. That's a good way to think of it. But yeah. my thing is that I was like, look, this is our one night that we are just basically we can be comfortable. So we went to Mr. and Mrs. Crab, which was delicious. And uh, there's another night, other nights, most of the nights, usually you could expect at a conference, you're going to be, if you're in sales, you're going to be meeting with customers. You're going to be meeting with customers over dinner. And that's where I met some of our, some of our clients that that's where my background, my scientific background really came came out and I was able to represent myself as one of their peers. Even though I think really they were at a much higher level than me, we have some shared experience from the research game that they were able to really trust me and tell me their real feelings. And also they're trying to sell you too. They're trying to sell you on themselves and wanting to be a bigger part of your business too. So all of those things were happening. And then during the conference, yeah, there's definitely like some downtime. But I I really believe that there's something to be gained from having spontaneous interactions. People walking by, you don't necessarily plan these things out, but you might meet somebody that has serendipitously needs what you're selling and you have that thing. And maybe they've been buying it from somebody else. But then there's also the swag aspect, right? The Ooh, everyone do, is giving yeah, stuff away. Yeah, do love the swag. The swag's great. I, I still have my really ACR stuff from bag. last year. Yeah. And then I guess there's a little bit of excess. I feel like there is a little bit of, I think maybe it's because conferences were shut down for a few years and now they're back that they're just throwing money at them to the point that I did a TikTok series reviewing the espresso options available for I did free see that. That on was the AACR show a, floor. A week of Instagram stories of you reviewing the espresso bars at all the Fortune 500 pharma companies. 
I just think if you're going to wait in line for one of these espressos, you should know if it's good or not. So that's that I'm doing public service. I'm trying to help people, yeah, decide between AbbVie and Loxo at Lilly and all these different companies that are offering stuff to try and get your attention. Which one is actually good coffee? That's what's important to me. <laughs> yeah, so who who won that one? I I didn't see, because you didn't give like a, you gave reviews, but you didn't really, I don't know if you had a TikTok that ranked them in the end. It's hard to rank them, but I would say that Avi was the best barista. Yeah. I think contractually they were all using the same beans. Good call saying Abby. So it's just no that there's no <laughs> favoritism here. It was just a matter of who was the best barista, who dialed it in the best. When you're a barista, you spend this time testing out the grind to determine what will make the best espresso. And so some people yeah. do that, some people don't. Yeah, it was funny to watch some of those YouTube or the TikTok videos that you had because I, I commented on one of them. I'm like, "Hey, she was there last year. She was so she was she was actually doing it for a different company last year. Last year she was with Eli Lilly. I'm pretty sure one of the baristas, the one I commented on. But they just happened to be so close to us that I would just go to her every morning, totally not hungover, <laughs> Dario." <laughs> We had a nice sober time. I don't fucking work there anymore. Whatever. Yeah. But yeah, I go there every morning when we were doing it. And yeah, she was there. She was nice. I liked her as a person. She's She gave me shit as well. She's like, oh, it's you again. And I'm like, yeah, obviously I'm not going to buy things from you guys. But I do want your coffee. And now I'm also here for the razzing because it's funny. So she was at Lily, at Loxo at Lily. So the yeah. funny thing about that, is that the uh, that particular booth, to call it a booth is really understating it because it is huge. It's like basically it's got like, its own Wi-Fi. It's like a building. It's like its <laughs> yeah. own building. And in the building, they have meeting rooms to have these important meetings between different parties. That's how important it is for them to have these meetings that they built a building with private rooms to have these meetings. And they also have their own espresso bar. Did you end up like... Without incriminating yourself related to Orlando, did you guys end up doing any cool events like going out or checking, I don't know, Disney World, Universal Studios or any sort of tours or anything like that? You can also probably talk about bars you went to as long as they're not on your list of expenses. The best, the one thing that we did, we wanted to do something that was like really Florida and really Florida specific. So we booked a alligator airboat tour at night. Oh, at night. And so we went out on this boat at night. The, the best time to see dark creatures in swamps. <laughs> but this, the guy driving the boat had like a headlamp. And so he would point his head and everyone in the boat would all turn their heads at once. And so there's this video yeah. of us all turning our heads. But that was really fun. And it wasn't just the alligators, which we saw lots of, but it was also just all the natural birds and just natural plants. I think I... If there was any part of the event that I would have liked to have been on mushrooms, it was probably that. Okay, just honestly, <laughs> the way that the reeds were just moving, it was just, it was beautiful. And then the other thing is the airboats, they don't have brakes. So the first time he came to a stop, he had to do this like bank turn skid thing. And the boat was leaned way over. And I thought we were just, I thought he had fucked up and we were just going into the water. I, I was, my heart was racing. That was a great time, but it was only one evening. Like really the majority of the time you're working, 
And then like after the work is done, oh yeah, here's another conference tip for you. If you're trying to meet someone and they're giving a presentation at the conference, do not try and schedule the meeting before they're giving their talk because they are going to be nervous AF. They're going to be like stressed, like pacing back and forth. They don't want to talk to you. Like they're just in their head trying to like get through their moment that they're in. Um, but then afterwards, they're usually like, oh, thank God somewhat. Yeah. But yeah, that that's just a general conference or anyone that you're trying to meet tip. Yeah. Yeah. And then actually going a bit back, being a grad student and then being essentially a postdoc with Quest, is that something that you could ever see yourself getting back into as a field or is the issue with how poorly people are paid in North America just too much of a deterrent and you're long-term looking to stay in the private sector? My supervisor, when I was doing my PhD, had very little interest in applications and it was frustrating because you'd see something and you'd be like oh that could be a product that could be a whole company he didn't want to go down that rabbit hole he wanted to stay on this really pure knowledge for knowledge's sake path but i think that working at some place where we think about can we make something that changes the world that disrupts an industry that makes a bunch of money i think that's something that i don't think i see myself leaving anytime soon i think what's the way I see that my path is that sales is great, but what we're selling are products. And so there's a job description, which is product management, which is where you're basically designing new products and figuring out what the market needs and then developing new products for them. A role where you can be a scientist, but also be involved with customers. And I do get a lot of motivation from helping people when they're like, I want to be able to do this, but I can't do it because of this and this reason. And if we can develop something that solves those problems for people, that is also extremely motivating. So I think that in the long term, I think product management is where I see myself gravitating towards if if I age out of sales. But sales is still ticking a lot of those boxes for me right now. And unless academia paid a hell of a lot more, which is very unlikely to happen, I don't see myself being motivated to go back. It makes sense. It's the same reason. Yeah or is a similar reason, at least, to why I gravitated towards biotech sales. And that was my goal from third year university was in to get into biotech or pharmaceutical sales. And a lot of it just came down to being in an industry that can be groundbreaking and also pays the bills. Like, I don't have much experience as a teacher or professor or TA or anything like that. So I can't really speak to that or and speak to any sort of personal gratification that I would get. But I do find that that life was, just didn't make sense for me. And something like pharmaceutical sales or getting into the private sector in general made a lot more sense. And was obviously more lucrative, but you had more flexibility within your career. And you also didn't feel as tied down to the university or you weren't waiting for your next contract to come up. You weren't, or in the case of you with Quest, you weren't in a university that ended up 
becoming bankrupt and just having no money to go around for anyone's, which means you don't really have any work. So I don't know if you feel the same way as me. I'm coming from someone who always had the business end in mind, whereas you are someone who actually worked in universities and maybe at one point in your career did think that was something you could go towards for the rest of your life. So when you do a PhD, your boss is going to be a tenured professor. And that tenured professor has had in their life exclusively university jobs. That's the only possible job that they could ever have had to get to that position of being a tenured professor. And so for them, it's hard to imagine anything else. They just haven't had that experience of anything else except the academic path. I definitely, when I, one of the other extracurriculars that I did when I was doing my PhD was a class in commercialization and innovation. It was through the material science department, so not necessarily the bio side, but it was through this chemistry department side. And it was really interesting hearing people from industry come in and talk about their paths and how interesting they were. But the skills that will allow you to be a teacher, what you're doing as a teacher is you're selling the curriculum. You're selling that people should pay attention to this textbook, which can be pretty dry and boring at times. And you have to, that's your job is to sell it and convince students to buy it by reading it. So the same skills that make you good at that will make you successful at sales. The same ability to manage relationships that will make it so that you can smooth things over when a student complains about something will help you when a customer complains about something. So I think that all these things are very much related. And if you're in one of those positions where you feel stuck in academia or stuck in industry, if that's the case, you can make the move and be in a position where you're happier. Yeah, it's a, yeah, it's really good to know for a lot of the audience here who are trying to decide what they want to do with their careers if they want to if they want to stick with academia post PhD or if they want to get into education as a whole. Realistically, like, what would it take to get back into academia? Is it just an overhaul of the system in general? Is it working? giving more salary to university labs or what yeah what would get you to even consider the move back there's definitely collaborations between academia and industry one of the big ones is there's this grant program called mytax in canada which is basically a company has a research question and they'll hire somebody in academia to help them answer it so i think that those are things which i could see myself managing a MyTax or trying to apply for one of those kind of things. But one of the things which makes academia really tricky is that it's this thing where if you ever leave it, you're dead to them. And it's basically, it's really difficult to go back into there. And I think that's one of the biggest problems with academia is that it's really... Like cult-like? Yeah, yeah. It's It's not open to outside voices or people who have other forms of life experience. And I think that's one of the biggest problems that it has. But what would have to change? Th this problem affects a lot of people more, m way more than me. So uh, an example that is really relevant to your podcast is that in the medical profession, if you are a person who wants to 
have children and take parental leave, that generally doesn't affect your career trajectory. You can have kids, take parental leave, and you can maintain, you'll still achieve the same overall career outcomes statistically as somebody who doesn't take parental leave. But in academia, taking parental leave is seen as not being serious about science and you are much less likely to stay on the tenure track, get the next tenure track job, yada, yada, yada. And so this is one of the places where medicine seems much more attractive to people who want to have a family as opposed to academia where having a family is really heavily penalized. And this is a culture problem in academia that needs to be solved. It doesn't really affect me because I don't want to have kids anyways, but it affects a lot of people in their decision to choose between these two things. And industry also is much more amenable to having a family. So these are all problems, which I'm not the first person to talk about, but we just have to be honest about what these problems are. No, we absolutely do. And I, I didn't even think that was something that was an issue within academia. It does, in a sense, sound like cult-like behavior where you're dedicated to strictly the science and any sort of outside feedback or outside life comes secondary. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it leads to a lot of social problems at these institutions where people don't have an, out, an outside group of friends. All of their friends are part of the institution, just like you would say in a cult. But I do, I, I follow a lot of podcasts. And, and when I hear a scientist talking and they say, yeah, I make a point of having friends outside of academia, I say, okay, that's a person who understands that this is a problem and is doing something to solve it. But that it, it, can, it, it can be all-encompassing. Yeah, no, I don't doubt it. And it's something people like definitely don't know coming into sciences. They don't go through their undergrad or beginning of grad school doing, say, their MSc and think that is going to be their entire life. People want a work-life balance. And it's a poor indictment of the academic industry as a whole, which is a shame because it's so necessary for advancing society that that something like this is still so prevalent. And I guess it comes down to just being stuck in an academic bubble. I think what I want to shout out now is that labs take a lot of different kinds of workers and that grad students are cycling in on this two to five to ten year kind of time scale, but that there tend to be permanent employees in labs who are usually either referred to as lab managers, techs, research assistants who are not in school, and that all these positions can be a career path that is good and fulfilling and lucrative and all that stuff, or they can be exploitative as well. And so I know people who were a lab tech for 10 years at a lab and really did a lot of the work that the PhD students ended up publishing, but they didn't get that credit for it. And that those people behind the scenes, this one person in particular that I'm thinking of, got so burnt out by the system exploiting her that they quit and became a barber because they wanted to just focus on doing their nine to five and then they go have a band at night and have a social life and all that kind of stuff. And they weren't able to do that while being a tech and there was no route for advancement for them. So it's it's not just the grad students. There, there's many different roles in academia 
But in academia, what you're very unlikely to have is an HR department that cares about the rules and pays attention to what the labor standards are. But when you're a company, you're much more likely to have those kinds of things that are going to meet the basic bare minimum of can you survive on this wage. Yeah. And, like, I'm not purely advocating for going to the private sector right out of grad school or anything like that. If you are interested in working with academia, absolutely go for it. I, and from the sounds of it, you, we both agree that there does need to be an overhaul within the systems in place for academia. And one of the more realistic ones is monetarily. Like, no one's surviving off of a wage that you're getting as a lab fellow or a postdoc at UBC to live in one of the most expensive cities in the world. My, And this is, I feel like, is might just be more of a strictly North American problem. Because my girlfriend's brother, he actually lives in Sydney right now, where he's been working as a postdoc for probably about four years now. And he's still unsure about what he wants to do. I was staying in Sydney at his place, and I did tell him if he ever did want to go to Vancouver, I, I recommend going into the private sector as a scientist rather than going into universities. And a lot of that comes down to the pay and just the overall mentality around it. He makes, I don't want to say an exact amount, but it's in six figures as a postdoc in one of the universities in Sydney. I can't remember exactly which one he's at. But yeah, that's what postdocs will make there. And that's a, given the fact that you're spending four to eight years of your life working on your PhD, a lot of times on the latter end of that one, $100,000 plus, yeah, that's good. Sydney's an expensive city. It's one of the most expensive cities I've ever been to outside of maybe Zurich or Reykjavik. That same job at like UBC or a Canadian or an American university, that's about, he's getting about half of what he's getting in Sydney. And he talked about wanting to come work it and work with yeast in Vancouver and be closer to his sister and make it easier for travel for his parents. But I was like, if you're going to do this, go private. It's just, it's not affordable to work in academia unless you are Admittedly, he is the kind of person who's incredibly frugal. I, you were telling me you're quite the frugal guy as well. Oh, yeah. I'm all about Value Village. Yeah, yeah. So he is someone who could do it. But going from a six-figure salary to about to fifty to 55000 a year max, like that's, that is a pretty steep drop. So, yeah, we all agree that the system right now is yeah. broken and it needs reform. And the question is, how do we go about getting that reform? And I think we have to look at examples of other places that are trying to do this. In California, there's a big category of universities called the University of California, the UC system. And the way that they achieved a big goal of getting better pay and better working conditions for their postdocs, grad students, et cetera, was they did have to go on strike. And the reason why going on strike works is that what those people are doing when they're not on strike is essential work. They are doing work. And the managers 
there's not enough of them and they don't have the capability to do the work. So when you go on strike, they feel it, they hurt, and then they have no choice but to give in to some of your demands. And it's a negotiation and you get you have to give up some things and some things they give up and you come to some kind of a compromise between them. But the fundamental principle of achieving change in the workplace is recognizing your own value as a worker and that by withholding your labor, you can demonstrate like, wow, this work really needs to get done. Maybe we should pay them more to do it. Yeah. And do you think that we should go more towards fighting against the universities themselves or we should look towards on either a provincial or federal level for more funding to people working in academia? I think both. I think both. I think that the people who run the university, that's their job is to get money from the government. And they've failed at that job. They've failed to secure enough funds to really run the universities the way they should be run. And right now we're in the midst of a huge public sector worker strike, which I want to shout out the PSAC workers that are on picket lines right now. And it's the exact same thing. They aren't being compensated fairly for what they're doing. So they're showing you what happens when they're not there to do their work. And then that allows the managers to realize, okay, we need to give them a fair share of the profits. But then the people who have to, so those university people are going to put pressure on the government in that way, but does there need to be something even bigger than the workers themselves? And I think that every student and everyone who has college-age children and everyone who has children that are someday going to be in university should think about some way to put pressure on the government, because we had this slogan in the union that I was a part of, the Teaching Assistance Union. The slogan was, our working conditions are your learning conditions. So when your TA is not able to afford lunch, then they're not going to be as good of a TA as when they're comfortable. And so that that's the situation that we're in right now, is that we need to expand the class consciousness beyond just the workers in the university and realize that everyone benefits from their work. Yeah, I think it's a good message to to send out to everyone that even if you're not necessarily in academia yourself or if you're a college-age student or a parent or just anyone who cares at all, put the pressure on the government to focus more on funding this and paying people in academia living wages because they're people who are doing incredibly necessary work and they're essentially getting paid minimum wage probably or less. yeah or less if you count the actual hours that they're working it's absolutely something that we need to put pressure on so many levels of government and yeah that's- and all these private sector companies if it wasn't for the investment from the public sector. There's lots of kind of research that wouldn't get done at public sector companies, and then they end up taking the results of that and making a ton of money off of it. And all of their staff have been trained first in kindergarten, grade school, high school, university, and they contribute to that in some way through their taxes. But really, it is a collective effort, and and the shareholders say that this is our thing that we own but really this is rip but it's really something that's 
it's come from so many different avenues and tons of it comes from the public sector tons of it comes from universities and then yeah a lot of these the riskiest work is being done by university researchers because they're the ones who can afford to fail and really push the envelope but that's a way to describe it that i've also heard is that the the public sector holds all the risk but the private sector takes all the profits so so there there definitely needs to be some kind of a systemic change to balance out these things I think we all agree on that. I think we, yeah, we absolutely all agree on that one. This is going to bring us to the end of the show. So before I go into just closing comments, did you want anything you wanted to plug about? Anything you wanted to talk about related to SignalCam or just just any sort of message to everyone? I feel like we got a pretty good message out of talking about public versus private, but... Did you have anything necessarily you wanted to plug related to SignalCam and their products? SignalCam is a great place to work. I think we've hired 10 people since I joined. And um, overall, like, I think it's a good place to work. So if you're, I'd never heard of it. So if you hear about it from this podcast and you see an opportunity, by all means apply. Uh, I would say, uh, Nathan, I want to thank you for inviting me on the podcast. And yeah, absolutely, been, man. It's I've, been I've great. had a really great time. Yeah, just it's just great to have an opportunity to talk about this stuff. Yeah, abs- no, absolutely. It's been, Adam, it's been great having you on the show. It's been a really you. interesting conversations and I've really enjoyed the the back and forth that we've gone on about this. We've definitely gone in a few different avenues. I meant to go a little less political, but that happens. That's the day, the way she goes. But yeah, no, yeah. Thank you to Adam Barlev for showing up on the show. Thank you to Palm Street Studios for producing this for me. I also want to thank everyone who is listening to Doctors Without Bar Tabs. If you do what you've heard, I would really appreciate if you shared this episode with your friends, family, and social media, whoever you think might like this. It would be a massive help for me. Do you want to be on the guest on the show? Do you want to get involved in the show? Are you looking to see more stuff in the future? Maybe you hated it and you think I'm garbage and my opinions are garbage. Whatever it is, please do check out newdoc.me, that's N-U-D-O-C dot M-E, to connect with us. Newdoc.me, the link will be in the bio. Thank you to everyone for listening and have a great day. That's game.